Welcome, friends, to Season 2, Episode 2 of Happy to Fail, the podcast where we continue having healing conversations where I think now more than ever, it's so important that we connect. We have this gift that through the power of technology, some of us may be uh, staying in our homes, some of us are very uncertain about the future, but whenever we just sit down and have these healing conversations, sometimes that light bulb just, just turns on, right? And we have that chance to make a positive change in our lives despite all the challenges that we have right now, the ones that we have in the future, when we recognize everything that we have overcome and the fact that all of that only makes us that much stronger, that is simply a rich and beautiful experience. Uh, my name is Juan Velas Court. I am a person with lived experience when it comes to a variety of different uh, mental health challenges. And through this podcast, and you may have even heard it in the first episode of uh, the second season, we're going to be having conversations. This one is not just going to be about me. We've had the chance to talk about something like accountability, being accountable for our own actions, but also recognizing when sometimes we don't necessarily have the power, the decision-making power uh, over a certain uh, situation, over a certain event. And in this episode, we are gonna be talking about the topic of invalidating our emotions, minimizing our emotions. What happens when we finally open up and instead of dealing with rejection, Somebody can downplay our emotions because sometimes they can pair with somebody else. So I thought that what better way to begin this new journey with a great friend than with than with this topic right here. But before that, I have here my friend Ana Conde. Ana, I got to ask you, what did you think about this uh, name of Happy to Fail? Something like more so aligned with like positivity. So I, I like that contrast between happy and, and failing we sometimes only focus on the positive but don't so many things so many challenges happen along the way that yeah we're gonna get frustrated sometimes we just want to let things go but then you do see that finish line and doesn't that just bring you like an, an incredible sense of satisfaction absolutely and i think it's also what drew me to the title is the fact that you know i think we're always forced to only experience happiness and quote-unquote positive things um, but like you're saying, like failing and, and other things that might not necessarily be quote unquote positive are a daily part of life. So to have to be able to have both in the same place, I think is very it resonates with the human experience. And I'm really happy I got you involved in the podcast because you and I, we've known each other for many years. We've uh, met each other through social media. We went to the same college, even though we studied different things. But I love that whenever we sat down, we had these really uh, deep conversations about many topics that when I thought about this new chapter of Happy to Fail, I immediately thought about you. But when it comes to uh, current times with Anna, where are you at right now? Yeah, so I am in Wethersfield, Connecticut, which is a suburb of Hartford. And I've been here now for four years in the central Connecticut area. Like you, though, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. I'm from Guaynabo originally. And I did live in Florida on and off, but my two homes are Puerto Rico and now Connecticut. Now, even though we are going to get to the topic of invalidating our emotions and uh, minimizing, I thought that the same way that I began uh, Happy to Fail by sharing parts of my life and why I branded this podcast Happy to Fail, I thought that nothing would be better than to give you an open forum to present yourself, who you are, and why you identify so much with the topic of Happy to Fail. So, I would love for you to just have this forum right now so you can let the world know uh, who you are. Yeah, so I think the question of who is Anna is coming at a very vulnerable time for me. Um, and I probably would have answered this question quite differently at the beginning of last year versus what I am right now. You know, I think at my core, I'm a, I'm a wife, I'm a daughter slash only child. 
I am an aunt to five through my husband, and I am oddly fascinated by Disney World. And I think everyone who knows me in person or online knows that about me. And I recently found that someone on YouTube uploaded all of the old school, like I'm talking VHS, Disney World vacation planning videos. And that has gotten me through the last year. (laughs) By trade, though, I received my doctorate in clinical psychology in Puerto Rico. And I still can't say I'm technically a clinical psychologist because I need to be licensed to be able to say that. So I still present myself as quote unquote a therapist, but I'm working towards licensure. So hopefully soon I'm able to present myself as a clinical psychologist. Um, And I've been in the mental health field now since 2012. So going on eight years. And I think the connection with Happy to Fail really comes from my experience in 2019 and feeling that I quite frankly, failed quite a bit. You know, I think a lot of it just, it felt like it all happened very sequentially, like one thing right after the other. And, you know, I started the year off doing a lot of like deep work in therapy and looking into kind of my relationship with myself, my relationship with my mom, because I feel like we're oil and vinegar sometimes. And um, I was doing a lot of, you know, self-reflection and being very vulnerable in therapy. And, um, you know, somewhere then around May, after a year of trying to get pregnant, we ended up getting pregnant. And we unfortunately miscarried at around seven and a half to eight weeks. Shortly before that, I actually think I was already pregnant, but I didn't know it. I had taken my licensure exam and I had unfortunately not passed it. And it had the stress of work had started getting to me a little bit at that point. Just for uh, reference, I was working in an inpatient psychology unit, which I absolutely adore. Adore, adore. I I love inpatient psychology, but it didn't take away from the fact that I was working very long hours and it was a very stressful job. And then I had actually already rescheduled to take my exam again because I kind of wanted to just to get that done with what ended up being a couple of weeks after the miscarriage. And quite frankly, I just couldn't study and I had been having symptoms that I didn't know were pregnancy symptoms. So I was like falling asleep a lot. (laughs) I was really struggling to study. And then I went through a very traumatic emotional and physical experience. And I was just quite frankly wiped out. And I didn't pass my exam when I took it the second time. So yet again, I failed it. (laughs) And I remember breaking down when I got home and just telling my husband, like, I cannot do this. Like, I can't. And so a lot of that really shaped who I am because I think for the first time in my life, I said, like, I can't do this because I've always been one to kind of try and power through and and just kind of continue on to the next goal. So high school, bachelor's degree, master's, doctorate, internship, fellowship, like I've always been go, go, go. And to for me to pause and be like, like, I can't do this. I can't balance everything right now. I can't work inpatient eight to eight and you know, expect myself to come home and study and then pass this really difficult exam. And, you know, I think that's really shaped how I'm handling quote unquote failure because I ended up quitting my job. And that was a very difficult decision. And I've been home since January. And it's been a lot of self-discovery and being patient with myself and working with a lot of guilt that I have about being home. And so, you know, kind of balancing the you know, I always say I find that I am able to really have a good grasp of rational stuff. So with regards to, you know, failing my licensure exam, I know that that exam does not define me as a therapist, but the emotional part of me is still like, oh my God, you failed. Like you suck. So it really, it's, it's been a really tough act to balance. And 
And I think those things have really shaped who I am and, you know, my vulnerability being very forthcoming about, you know, mental health and struggling with anxiety and going through a very difficult grief process with the miscarriage and all of those things. Um, and, an, and another thing that I kind of want to add about who I am is I've really worked hard to kind of differentiate who I am as a person versus who I am at work because, you know, I was always that person that was studying. Like I remember my entire 20s, whenever someone asked me, so what are you doing in life? Well, I'm studying. Um, and um, I felt like my profession was starting to define who I was as a person. And even though I love what I do and I'm very proud of it, I don't want to be known as Anna the psychologist. Like I want to be known as Anna and I happen to be a psychologist by trade. So I hope that that very long intro gives a little bit of insight as to who I am and where I am right now in life. No, first of all, uh, thank you so much for sharing so many intimate details of your life because uh, obviously uh, I can't you know, possibly fathom what that process of miscarriage must be like, but I remember following you through social media and then all of a sudden seeing these posts and then my wife and I here are sitting just trying to have an idea of what that is like and then you combine that with sometimes we have family challenges, but you, we have professional challenges. Now in 2020, we have a pandemic challenge, right? So we're, we're playing Jenga and you're trying to figure out, okay, which one do, do I want to pull? But you don't want to have the tower fall. But, you know, within all of that, you're still here. And I have no doubt that every step of the way, of course, there, there is that pain, right? There is that process that we all naturally go through when we lose something or when we strive something or we're, we're always just, just a couple of inches away, right? But then it doesn't happen. You do learn from that. And that is something beautiful within the context of the situation. Even as a therapist and even knowing that, you know, everyone experiences grief in different ways and that grief can apply to any scenario. It doesn't just have to be a, a death or a loss. Going through, you know, what feels like going through all the stages of the grieving experience constantly, you know, for months has been very eye-opening to, to the vulnerability and the reality that it is to be very open about loss and you know, within everything. Um, and I'm, and I'm not one of those people that say everything happens for a reason, because I feel that that can be highly invalidating. And truth be told, um, you know, some people with the best intentions said that to me when they found out about the miscarriage. And it was really frustrating, because I don't, I don't find that there's any reason for (laughs) losing my, my baby, you know, but I will say, though, that it did humanize me into kind of like the the pain and the grieving experience recognizing that you know i i did come from a privileged life and and hadn't really experienced that loss and pain other than you know losing my grandparents who were old and you knew they were going to go away at some point you know i feel like that right there is why this connection between you and me as friends as and now part of this journey is essential because number one you bring a, a clinical perspective that in, in the past season of, the, of this podcast, I've been open about many ongoing challenges and the whole fear of what it's like to you know, suffer from mental illness, how your family uh, perceives all of that. And we're going to continue talking about that in, in the between episodes where I sort of provide more context. But then on the other side, you mentioned this whole process that you went through and that in many times, sometimes people 
maybe they have the best intentions, right? When you just said that, that uh, maybe something better will come. I think we've always heard that, right? It doesn't even matter what situation. Sometimes our, our family members or our loved ones with the intention of trying to motivate us, but that can also be minimizing because it, they may not realize it, but they're kind of trying to assume how you're feeling or how you want to feel. And then when you hear that, you can't help but get frustrated. So when you think about the topic of minimizing, what comes to mind for you? You know, I, I think it's, I separate both a little bit. You know, I try to be very aware as a therapist to never minimize anybody's experience. But I think, um, and I think you and I have talked about this, at, you know, not only in, prepar- in preparation for the podcast, but I, I think maybe in, you know, times before. Yes, friends, yeah. Culturally, it's such a, like, we come from such a caring, but within that minimizing culture. Um, you know, I, I, as you were talking, I was kind of thinking back to, I think the, the Puerto Rico equivalent of, you know, everything happens for a reason is, um, el tiempo de Dios es perfecto. God's timing is perfect. And yeah, yeah it's, it's very well intentioned. And I think being a therapist helped me be very conscious that everybody's doing the best that they can with what they have. So if that's what that person's telling me in the moment, that's the best that they have to offer. It's still, in, you know, invalidating. Um, and I, you know, I think we've talked about like the I bendito, like, you know, oh, you poor thing, which can kind of be translated into every range of, you know, emotion spectrum. Um, you know, it can be something either good, it can be something not so great. It can be, you know, being very annoyed at someone. Um, so, you know, I think there's, definitely a very big cultural aspect that I've been more aware of and have also tried to dig a little bit deeper as to how it impacts how I interact with others, but primarily how I interact with myself. And, you know, if if I tie it back to allowing myself to feel everything that I've felt, like I mentioned earlier about the grief, disconnecting it a little bit from from that a pattern of like invalidation that we've been subjected to without knowing it. It's been a very eye-opening experience. And that's why this topic of minimizing is so important. Uh, Even before we recorded this episode, we were like, okay, so we really want people to be able to connect. And I love the fact that you and I, we did not grow up in a similar way or live in the same place. So despite all that, there are still connections. And I think that when we boiled it all down to like mental health, physical health, well-being goals, it is that topic of minimizing because you bring up your incredible story of of just overcoming so many things, especially within the last two years. In the podcast, I mentioned that I'll never forget growing up, the first time I was, I was diagnosed, people just would not understand mental health because they could understand a broken leg, but not a broken mind. And of course, I don't mean to imply that, but you kind of get the point, right? Where it's like, it's something happening in the brain and the mind, in our emotions, in our behavior. So people would many times tell me, well, at least you don't have cancer. And I, and I get that initially they're doing it with the benefit of making me feel better, but I still had my mental health challenges. None of that went away. And if anything, I felt worse because I'm like, I don't have cancer, so should I should I feel bad if if I'm feeling bad about my mental health challenges, about the physical, emotional abuse happening on behalf of some of the family members? And this many times, and especially getting to know your story and, and just what I know of, of you, when we combine this, it's so many times people tell this us to the point that we just stop talking because we're so afraid of why should I be open sometimes when the outcome is many times, well, somebody's having it worse. 
that doesn't make you feel better. Yeah, and I, and I think also the the expectations that other people kind of bestow upon us as to what you know um, recovery should look like, and people think that it's a linear process. And I think you know, with your work experience, you you actually think have even more to say about that than I do. But you know, I remember um, after after I miscarried in July, um, I I was and I still quite frankly, am a little bit more withdrawn than I, than my usual self. And I've, you know, I, I try to be okay with that, but also kind of put in the effort to, to engage with others. But the reason I bring that up is, you know, um, I, I was very withdrawn and very quiet for a couple of months. And I remember my mom and I kind of have this love hate relationship. And at one point she called me in December and she was unbelievably frustrated with me and I kind of bursted out crying and she was like well if you're gonna cry I'm just not gonna talk to you um which again you know I think comes from a cultural standpoint and um emotions being something that we don't necessarily know how to handle yeah especially our Puerto Rican culture many times that tie that that's the safety zone we don't talk about that so I told my mom like just because I'm crying it doesn't mean that I'm not able to talk to you um, and I told her, like, you know, like, you have no idea the physical and emotional trauma that I've been through. Um, and she, rightly so, you know, and I try to be very aware and balance both things. She said, well, I, I wouldn't know because you don't talk to me. Um, and she was right. And the reason that I hadn't talked to her about it was because in those early stages, and mind you, I called I called my mother before I called my husband um, when I because my husband was actually in Puerto Rico the week that I um, unfortunately had the miscarriage and um, called. So I, I had everybody on the phone with me and not to get into too many details, just out of respect for anybody who's listening and might not be comfortable with it. But I had struggled with bleeding twice and I actually ended up going to the emergency room um, before, you know, I was actually confirmed the, the miscarriage. People were kind of aware that week and by people, I mean my parents, his parents. And I remember I called my mom and I remember telling her, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, to this day, I still apologize for it. And um, she was like, you have nothing to be sorry about. Like it was very reassuring, but you know, I think she was in crisis mode and, and not blaming me, which I appreciate. But immediately after that, I think she went into problem solving mode, having her only daughter, her only child so far away from her experiencing something tragic. And she went into like, you know, well, at least you got pregnant. Um, at least you were very early on. Um, you know, you can always try again soon. All of these kind of remediative phrases so to speak um that you know in the moment I appreciated but ended up being very hurtful so my thought was to kind of withdraw obviously you and I are, are going through very different situations at, at these different moments of our lives but something that I remember is that uh, in my case overcoming anxiety depression so many things initially people would just completely minimize that but then it wasn't up until sometimes that they would see like uh, self harm or or very questionable activities that then they would uh, sort of uh, flip to the other side and go into that immediate reassurance seeking mode, uh, trying to be that that comfort zone. But to me, that was frustrating. Why? Because when I was trying to be open, when I was trying to seek that support, usually it was sort of shoved to the side because in my case, once again, mental health is is a big no no. But then. I feel like I had to go to the opposite side. I had to go to the extreme of uh, possible suicide situations or suicide ideations or talking about the fact that I hate myself. That then, in, in my case, the family understood, okay, I need to go in there. But 
it's so sad that sometimes extreme situations have to happen in somebody's life for somebody else to realize, okay, this is actually something that's really happening because so many lost opportunities happen in that way. How many people either you've supported, you yourself, me, our community, sometimes is afraid to speak out, but we don't create the comfortable environment out of fear of being minimized, out of fear of being compared. And and sometimes we compare because it's what we know, right? Especially us in Puerto Ricans. Like if I went to your house and I and I shared any other like random situation, you know, uh, uh, food burnt, you would immediately jump to like, oh, that also happened to Fulana two weeks ago. And then we'd all laugh about it. So it's it's like this thing that we cannot help but do, but it's in events like this that we realize how damaging it can be, right? No, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's also how with us being part of, you know, the millennial generation and and being, you know, as they say, overeducated and underpaid, but that's another topic. We have the privilege, so to speak, that, you know, we were able to be educated, I think a lot of us, differently than our parents. And that I think will, at some point, and it is my hope for the world, you know, that help diminish a lot of generational trauma you know like you've been saying you know we don't talk about mental health in puerto rico or if we do it's it's stigmatized to substance abuse only and so forth so i i think you know that within that there is opportunity and a space for growth so to speak and i think there's a sense of irony in all of this because i completely agree that it's the same thing with my father. Uh, he was very abusive with me growing up, and a lot of my trauma stemmed from those relationships way past my you know, anxiety, depression, and all that. A lot of that came from just years of all of that building up. And then, as you mentioned, now we have so much information. I mean, here we are, two people just recording a podcast, just talking about this. Like, even this alone is information. But that's also led to a lot of people saying, oh, this is the weak generation. Now everybody's like, everybody's overly emotional. And I'm in the mindset that, look, the, the things that I'm talking about and feeling right now, I remember specific moments when I was like nine years old. And I'm getting like chills just thinking about this, that I'm feeling now what I felt back then. The thing is back then... I didn't have a you know smartphone. I didn't have Twitter or social media that I could be open about this and talk about this. Like, you know, back then, if you were in Connecticut, there was there would have been no way I just had like this casual conversation with you. So I think people just don't understand. And at least this is for me, and I would love to get your re reaction to this. It's not that people are more emotional now. It's not that people are weaker in quotes right now. It's that we finally have access and the opportunity to be like, hey, this is how I feel. Like, do not minimize that. Now it's a matter of what can we do about that, right? It gives us the opportunity to be able to to make some sort of difference with the way we talk about things and, and recognizing that we have the ability to get information from all of it. But I also feel like that's a huge responsibility. And it takes a lot of conscious effort to be able to know what to do with that. Because definitely, you know, and I think, and, and that's something that I, I know we'll talk about later. Oftentimes, and I work a lot with, so I don't, I didn't mention it earlier, but my, you know, quote unquote specialty is children, adolescents, and within that families. And so I have a myriad of experience with family therapy. And a lot of what I know parents would often feel frustrated with is, and they would, you know, share it with me afterwards is, you know, I've tried so hard to provide X, Y, and Z. Um, but it, it's almost like we've continued to have this disconnect between parenting and emotions and culture and all these things. So definitely, and I think the more that we're able to have these conversations, and I've seen, you know, so many like 
pro-therapy movements and such like that, that hopefully it's able to get us to a new place. And, you know, there's so much, I think we often have this like idealized version of what therapy can be. And sometimes it's just not a good fit for you. Um, And I had, and I know you've had that experience one and I don't want to speak for you. I mentioned because I also had like that, my first, the first therapist that I saw in Puerto Rico, I just, I couldn't connect with her. Um, And it quite honestly felt like I was wasting my time Um, and hers. (laughs) So I agree. I think, you know, we're in such a great moment in time for, for some things like being able to connect no matter where you are and being able to have certain conversations and, and being aware that people who do say that, you know, we're weak or that we're too emotional, you know, kind of being able to understand where they're coming from as well and not letting that quote unquote kind of get to us, you know? One of the future episodes we're going to be talking about is exactly that, the the whole concept of connecting with that therapist, but on the flip side, the, the therapist connecting with the person when we're talking about emotions, somebody that for the first time, maybe in like an over a decade, is saying, okay, I'm going to go see a therapist, but what does that look like? Sometimes they'll see it in a movie and think it's, you know, I'm going to lay down in the bed or, or in the sofa, and it's going to be this exact process, and they're going to ask me X and Y. And the fact that you can be able to provide that experience on both sides, and then in my case, I can provide my experience of going through multiple therapists and some that connected, some that did not, I think it's going to be a beautiful conversation. But something that you mentioned, and I think if we're talking about minimizing, I think on the flip side, we got to talk about empathy because you mentioned that example of, and, and it happened to me, especially with my father, where anytime that I would try to talk about my emotions or how I was feeling. And it doesn't have to be parents. It can be a spouse. It can be anybody. The immediate response was, well, I'm working so hard to provide. And for me, every single time, it's like, I don't give a damn about the money or like, I would rather not eat. I would rather you sit down and just just hear me out for five minutes, right? But then there is a sense that I have to physically do some kind of activity to support you when the other side, you know, when talking about empathy, which is the ability to understand and share feelings, I just want you to sit down, look me in the eyes, and just let me vent. Just let me connect with you. So I know that not just physically, but emotionally you're there. And and in your case, based on your story and also some of the services you've provided, how how difficult do you think the concept of empathy, who everybody talks about being empathetic, right? But how hard is it actually to get to that? Seeing it from all sides of, you know, what connects empathy. I've had to have very serious conversations with parents in the past where, you know, we have these kids who, for X, Y, or Z reason, are really struggling with empathy. And, you know, I, it's not something that you necessarily have a formula to develop. There's also no medication that will make you be empathetic. And that's something that's really hard to deal with when you're, you know, in a family dynamic or in an interpersonal dynamic, I should say, where there's a case of severe mental illness. You know, what does that empathy look like? It's hard to develop because empathy has been associated with making things right. And somehow by me being empathetic means that I'm going to make things right for you or very quickly put a Band-Aid for you just to kind of take away the pain quickly versus what empathy can and should be, which is really providing this unconditional support, whether that's, you know, providing a physical environment or the emotional space, I should say, and recognizing 
you know, that just because I didn't go through this doesn't mean that I don't understand you. And also, you know, I think a, a bigger component of empathy that is often not talked about is just because someone went through something, quote unquote, worse than I did, whatever that means, it doesn't take away from my struggling right now and how, you know, I think that connects with our struggles with being empathetic with ourselves. So when you were talking about your experience with your dad, I, I kind of went back to my moments with my mom and, and it's it's not something that she ever deliberately said, but my parents are Cuba, but they left, very, my dad left when he was a baby. My mom left when she was a teenager. She left during the famous Marielle exile in the 70s. And um, I've, I've always had almost like this automatic thought process that I cannot complain about anything because she went through so much worse than I ever can even imagine, you know. So I, I've, I allowed that thought to kind of take away my empathy towards myself and allow myself to feel a lot of things. So I know that was a very kind of like winded answer for empathy. No, but it's awesome. There's so much to it, you know, and I think my my mind naturally divides it into kind of therapy mode, personal experience mode, clinical skill mode. Um, and it's there's a lot to talk about with with empathy. But I think overall, you know, in all aspects of that, um, I've, I've seen and experienced empathy to be something that we feel is something that will just take it away without recognizing that empathy can can mean I'm just going to sit here with you and experience this really, really crappy moment with you without even trying to make it better. Sometimes, even if I went through the exact same situation that you went through, that doesn't mean I exactly know how you're feeling. And then if we immediately jump into concluding, oh, this is exactly why Anna is feeling sad then there can be such a big disconnect. And then you're just thinking, well, Juan's jumping to conclusions. And ironically enough, we fall into minimizing because we can go, well, I went through that as well. I was over it in two months. So what are you implying if it takes you two years, right? We're creating this competitive environment as opposed to understanding that if I don't understand your emotions, then let me sit down. Let me just listen to you. Let me feel you out. Let me understand where you're coming from. And that's why I think it's so, so important that things like this podcast happen, uh, different uh, videos on YouTube of people being open about their stories and the importance of sharing their stories in order to reduce minimizing. Because it's so sad that um, I was at one point I was at a at a conference. You know, I do a lot of these speaking arrangements in Puerto Rico and in the states. Obviously, very different right now with the situations happening around the world. But when I did. The one thing that I always said out loud is that, look, I get how beautiful it is that a celebrity can come out and talk about their ongoing mental health challenges, but what if that person is not a celebrity and they want to talk about that? You know, the celebrity can be in your house. It can be your brother, your sister, your aunt, somebody that's just crying out to just ventilate and wants to just be open up and say, I'm dealing with these different challenges, but... If they're not a celebrity, then sometimes people can minimize or they can say, well, if X, Y, and C person was able to overcome it, you can. And look, initially that can be beautiful, but that person also has maybe a, a certain bank account that can lead to a wide array of services that are available. Uh, you know, my case growing up, I was in Puerto Rico 
And a psychiatrist told my mom, hey, like for adequate treatment, you got to go to Wisconsin. And at that point, health insurance, thankfully enough, and and it's a miracle, they were able to cover some of that stuff. And it was over $30,000. And that was over a decade ago. I know so many families now that they see that YouTube video. They see all of that. They get motivated. But when it's time to actually pay, we can't just we can't just uh, overly uh, motivate somebody. And I think that just by understanding that empathy and not minimizing, there's so much that we can do, not tomorrow. There's so much that we can do just right now by not minimizing, not jumping to conclusions and just sitting down and, and connecting with people on an emotional level. And then everything else just kind of slowly opens up. Especially with like, and I like how you, you know, phrase that at the end about slowly opening up. Because when I think of minimizing, you know, I think my very simple non-clinical um, definition of it is disregarding an experience. Like I feel like no matter how you look at it, when someone is either minimized or has been minimized, you're disregarding their experience, their, their feeling in a moment in time. Um, and how can we change that, you know, slowly? And how can we start doing that? Like right now, like you were saying, um, not necessarily waiting until, you know, we feel like we have an adequate, um, understanding of clinical terms. Um, but how can we just, you know, as part of our interpersonal relationships, how can we incorporate these kind of at their core social skills that, you know, that we have the base for, I think, especially culturally, I think where Puerto Rico has such a connectedness and we're all about helping others and such so we have the you know the value there it's just how can we work towards in a way modifying it or adapting it to the challenges that we face nowadays what relationships look nowadays um and continue to kind of grow from that we need to understand that emotions is just so complicated, right? If if you needed a dollar, I give you a dollar, and I immediately see, okay, that's a one, so therefore, I was able to address Anna's problem. But when you don't physically see that, you can be smiling on the outside but feel terrible on the inside. And I think that the, the sooner we realize that this is not a race. I'm not racing five laps, and exactly at the fifth lap, I win first place, and everything's solved, that... Recovery is individual. Healing from trauma. uh, There's some trauma that I wish I would have healed from over 10 years ago. There's some things that, you know, I was able to go through multiple psychologists, psychiatrists, my school, private, public, all of that. And even with all those resources, some things still took me multiple years to heal from. And I think the sooner that we understand that part of that empathy of it's like connecting and understanding that emotion that the other person's going through is don't make them seem like it's a race. Because to me, to me, that was minimizing because it was telling me, it was the nicest way of telling me, you're feeling bad, get over it. You you have exactly one week to get over this because I got stuff to do. And look, I got stuff to do as well. And that is healing. And that that's on me. That that's on my time. And I wouldn't wouldn't like uh in your case, right, with everything that you went through, would you not have given everything to despite all of those things that you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, just tell you like, I'm going to give it a week and in a week I'm going to be perfect. That's like the the perfect scenario yet. We know that when it comes to real life, it's far from that. I think part of that is also kind of built into who we are. You know, I remember I we confirmed the miscarriage on a Monday. I went to work Tuesday. <laughs> um, and I think a, a big part of what led to me being very 
raw and, and honest with myself and saying like something needs to change and that something unfortunately is work for the time being was that I truly like I powered through like I felt like I I had to be okay you know um, because other people go through this and that doesn't mean that the world stops and I'll be honest with you I, I, I worked days that I probably wasn't the best therapist and then that's really hard for me to say out loud because I, I didn't go into work those days with the intentions of being short or being very frustrated. And, you know, to clarify, I worked in an inpatient unit at the time. So I did have the flexibility of kind of going into my office and recouping a little, but it wasn't like I was seeing patients, you know, eight patients back to back. Um, You know, I think part of that is also kind of wired into us and, and into what survival mode looks for every person, looks like for every person, sorry. No, and I appreciate that so much because the same way that, I, I've worked in the mental health field for over eight years at this point, uh, non-clinical, but still, I've been able to engage with social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, all of it. And initially, I went into all of this thinking that, you know, I'm the ex- ex-patient, I'm the, pe- the person in recovery, so I'm the one that's allowed to feel bad. But then as the years have gone by, I've seen just how much minimizing happens to everybody else, because you're the professional, right? You you spent years studying this, therefore, you have to be perfect. You can't go through any problem. You're, you're able to control your emotions. Once again, once we get to real life, we see that it's not nearly as easy as it is to do that, but you yourself identified during that process that you do need that time. Some people, if they don't have that healthy support system, say I'm in a home and I realize, I, Juan, I need this time. I don't know if it's a, a week, a month, or a year, but if I'm constantly under this pressure by parents, by my coworkers, spouses, or something, I can just keep going. But eventually, that car's going to crash, and I'm, t- and I'm talking about this on an emotional level. So once again, I, that's why I love the fact that it's you and me working on this new face of all this, because it's not about the patient, it's not about the client, it's not about the participants. We are human beings, people. We're going to have awesome days, and we are going to have these horrible days that you're just like, I have all the resources in the world, I have all the knowledge, but we still can feel bad. And the moment that we don't allow ourselves to feel bad or or, or feel the way we feel, it's when we're invalidating and minimizing our very own emotions. And I feel like if we ever minimize ourselves... That's definitely a red alert, at least for me. You know, I, I've had those moments where I'm kind of just laying low. Um, part of recovery for me has looked like, I call it like I have these crying spells whenever I'm triggered with anything related to like pregnancy or miscarriage. Um, and I'm like literally physically and mentally exhausted for like the next day or so. And I and I feel so bad. And I tell my husband, like, you know, like, I'm sorry. And he's like, why are you apologizing? Like, the whole purpose of this was, you know, for you to kind of take things on your own time. Um, but I often feel like, you know, it was a day wasted, even though it was a day allowing myself to kind of feel the aftermath and just going through those emotions and allowing myself to also kind of rest from that. And I do want to say, like, you know, a little parenthesis to all of this. I do recognize my privilege and being able to take a seemingly, I think, a year with everything that's been going on and how that has changed timelines and all of that off from work. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, is also not talked about. You know, not everyone necessarily has the option to take six months or a year off from work to focus on their mental health and, and everything else. Um, so just, you know, for 
for the sake of those listening, I am very aware of that privilege and it's not, you know, lost on me how how lucky I am to be able to do that. But I still, you know, I, I do recognize that there are things that we can do day to day, even if you're working full time, that allow us to work towards healing a lot of minimize that we could have experienced. Um, be aware of how we've potentially minimized others' experiences and work towards being better at that. And just working towards an overall healing of whether it's something that, you know, you've been diagnosed with, like obsessive compulsive disorder or, you know, major depression. And just our overall experiences that maybe don't have a diagnosis on them, but have impacted us. And I think we could actually even dedicate an episode to especially that healing from trauma and that's why I love this, right? That naturally in the conversation, something comes up that's like, wait a minute, that, that would be a pretty good thing to talk about. I think if there's any any sort of a ribbon or closure we could bring to this episode is that it's so key that we simply get to connect with our emotions before understanding why am I going to get in that car? Why do I want to talk to this person? And knowing that because of the cultural aspects that we both talked about people are going to react more often than not based on what they know. If all they know is shut up and don't talk about mental health, in my case, I wasn't surprised when that happened. That doesn't mean I didn't feel any worse. I definitely did. But it's also important to be able to sit down and understand and and explain when you minimize or when you say this to me, this to me is minimizing and this is how it's affecting my mental health. I think that something that I've always just tried to uh, have a, a shift in conversation is, we love to sometimes obsess over mental illness and conditions, but we're, we are all human beings, so we're all allowed to feel bad. So we can't look at it, of course, major depression. As somebody that's gone through all of this, I understand the importance of that. But above that, I understand that it's okay to just validate everybody's emotions because you may feel in a certain way that I'm like, that is outrageous, but that it's your emotions, right? If I'm just immediately shutting you down, we're disconnecting, we may not talk to one another, and I may not be able to support you in the way that you specifically think uh, we should get to. But uh, I'd love to know, uh, how did you think this first experience went uh, with with both of us? I I, I love this conversation. I love it. I feel like it's been years in the making. (laughs) Finally taking the time to talk about things that we've kind of alluded to and that we both know the other one is experiencing like I know you've been in you know peer advocacy for a really long time and I you know I'm super proud of that um and I love how kind of and I and I know you talk about this I think in your first episode I might be wrong but I'm pretty sure you talk about it kind of like your trajectory I remember when I met you you were studying I think it was film yeah yeah actually a radio or something like that to so to kind of see all of this but then you know like life happened and you know I ended up moving away and even when I was home I think you know I don't we just very rarely kind of after we graduated, um, and I don't think we talked about it, we, we went to undergrad together for those who are you. Right, yeah. <laughs> hey, that's a thing. That's where Juan and I met. We went to undergrad together. And, um, you know, I think it's it's been great. And I, and I know that there's so much with kind of both of our experiences in mental health that we can talk about that hopefully others are able to connect to. Absolutely. And as I mentioned, everybody in the prior episode, some things, they're just better as a conversation, right? It's one thing to be open about these key things that are happening in in our minds, and those are still going to be coming out. So this is a conversation, not just between Anna and myself. This is a conversation between all of us, because the sooner we can all talk about the importance of healing, trauma, mental health, all of the stuff that we're all going through, especially in 2020, people, the sooner we're going to have happy and healthier communities. So if you do want to reach out, 
I have an email at Juan at HappyToFail.com. You can also reach us out via Facebook. So that's just Happy to Fail. The episodes are not just going to be published on YouTube and the podcast apps. They're also going to be widely available on Facebook because, look, we don't care where the episode is. What we care about is making sure this gets to the people that need to hear it so they can heal, so they can connect, they can feel identified, and we can have ourselves some awesome conversations. So with that being said, everybody take care, and we will see you on the next episode of Happy to Film.